If you're visiting this morning with us here at Buffalo City Church, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the elders here this morning, and I'm going to invite you in just a second to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19, which is where we're going to be considering uh, a handful of verses this morning. Uh, we've been in John's Gospel since September of 2020, and we're coming to a close here. And honestly, as we look this morning at, uh, at John chapter 19, we're going to see very clearly uh, the culmination of what Jesus has been talking about and the direction that he's been going uh, and what he's been leading his disciples towards this morning. So beginning in chapter 19, verse 16 this morning, I'm going to read through verse 42. And if you don't have this in front of you, I encourage you, there's still a handful of Bibles in the back. Would you pick one up, even just go right now and pick one up and uh, have these words in front of you or pull them up on your phone. These are the words inspired by the Holy Spirit recorded 2,000 years ago by the Apostle John for our benefit. The Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, uh, had us in mind when these words were inspired and recorded nearly 2,000 years ago. These words come with, uh, to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ were here speaking them to us this morning. This is not something we take lightly when we read the scriptures, but something that we take very, very seriously and need to acknowledge together that God is here with us. Chapter 19, I'm going to re begin reading in verse 16, actually the second half of verse 16, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter this morning. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to the Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garment and divided them into four parts, one part for each shoulder, soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the, disciples whom he, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine in a hyssop branch and held it into his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. 
So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other whom had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. No, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and spices, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one yet had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Like I said a moment ago, this represents the culmination of what Jesus has been talking about to his disciples throughout John's gospel. And now we arrive here at the actual scene of the crucifixion and then the burial of Jesus. Right at the heart of this passage, we see in verse 30, Jesus make a statement. His final words on the cross here, recorded in John, is it is finished. The question that we have to ask ourselves when we come to this passage is, have, we, have you ever finished something? Have you ever finished something? And the answer is probably, yes, I finished something. I finished breakfast this morning, or I finished a load of laundry this week, or I, uh, or I met several goals, uh, completed several things at work this last week. But you kind of know also, when you talk about those things, finishing breakfast or doing laundry or, or meeting goals at work, you kind of know that you didn't actually really finish anything. Because those things, again, are waiting for you this next week. A new set of goals at work. Another load of laundry. Uh, breakfast you have to eat again tomorrow. And no matter what you think of, there's more of it to do. More to be done, whether it's by you or by someone else who comes after you. We, we spent, our family spent the majority of 2022 renovating uh, a house. But the work didn't finish when we moved in. In fact, I feel like every day the list... There's more and more to do still uh, now that we live in the house. The list of maintenance and improvements that need to happen are growing, even though we had only lived in the house seven or eight months. It's been a few years, but a couple of years ago, well, I don't even know. It's probably 20, 2019, 2018 maybe even. That seems like yesterday, but it's a long time ago. You'll remember that we studied the book of Ecclesiastes together. And right out of the gate in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, who is attributed or said to be Solomon, points out the cyclical nature of our world, that things operate in cycles and in creation. This is what happened. In Ecclesiastes 1, 4 through 7, the, the, the preacher says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. 
The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around it goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The ocean is never done filling up. The sun sets, but it rises again tomorrow, and then it sets again in the same place the next day. The numbers on the calendar might change, or they may say something different, but the same things will happen tomorrow as happened today. We know wind. We know wind in North Dakota. And the wind blows across the plain, and it may die down, but you know again the next day or the next day that it's coming back, and it's coming back with a vengeance. What is ever truly finished? John's gospel, again, is building or has been building to this point, to the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his death, and then his burial. And at the end of this passage, or in the middle of this passage, rather, Jesus utters those words right before he dies. It is finished. Again, three words that we're familiar with. Three words that we know that he spoke from the cross very clearly. These three words, though, represent finality in the way that nothing else before it has. In the way that nothing else in creation had up until this point, which represents finality. It's not like finishing breakfast. It's not like finishing beating your goals at work. It's not like finishing a load of laundry, but it's true, final, finished, done, no more to do ever. These words represent more finality than we can imagine. More finality than we will experience in in this life. What Jesus did on the cross never has to be done again. It never has to be added to. It is completely sufficient and it is completely sufficient for eternity. It is finished legitimately means it is finished. Not a cycle. No improvements. No additions. Time cannot touch its effectiveness. It is finished. If we, if we actually together think about the audacity of the claim, it is finished. Friends, I don't, I don't think that we can wrap our minds around true finality in the way that is contained within Jesus' words here. In fact, it's ridiculous. Again, the the, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes has this in view when he thinks about the cycles of the earth. Over and over and over again, these things happen. And sure, it may seem like they're done, but they're not. It happens again, again tomorrow. He says, there, there is nothing new that is under the sun. When writing this gospel, the Apostle John knew just how crazy it is to think about true finality. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this as well. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. One of the ways that the word of the cross, one of the ways that what Jesus accomplishes on the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing is that it does indeed represent finished. It is finished. Again, not a cycle, no improvements, no additions. 
Time can't touch it. It is finished. In this text this morning, this is a big chunk of text, but in this text we see three places where Jesus' words, it is finished, are illustrated. John wants us to see finality in what's being both said in those three simple words. But also he wants us to see finality in the events that surround those three simple words. Again, this section of text, beginning in the second half of verse 16, all the way through verse 42, have verse 30 right at the heart of it. And right at the heart of, right at the, heart of the passage, it is finished, is then surrounded by, it's packed in with a handful of pointers showing us just how it is finished looks. So there are three things here, again, that will guide our time together this morning. With just it is finished in mind, in verse 30, the finality, there are three things. First, the finality in Pilate's inscription. Second, the finality in Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture. And third, the finality in Jesus' actual physical death. Okay, so we're going to break those off one by one. And the first is the first part that we see here. After they lead Jesus off to be crucified and they crucify him, the inscription that Pilate writes and places uh, on the cross. So after last week, we, we noticed that Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified right at the beginning of verse 16. That was where we ended last week. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, the Jews, to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, where, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others on either side and Jesus between them. Very little details here are given about the actual crucifixion. In fact, it's just given in a couple of words. There they crucified him with a few details about who was around him and what was actually transpiring and where they did it. But it's actually a very little piece of the puzzle. And, and the, the reality is that for John's readers, they mostly would have understood the gruesome nature of crucifixion as a means of capital punishment. They would have understood all the details that went into it. As Jesus was led to be crucified, they could probably either have witnessed or have heard in great detail from others what crucifixion, Roman crucifixion, was like. And so John doesn't go into great detail here. But again, the details that he does give us are incredibly important. It would be sort of like you hear about someone who receives the death penalty for a crime committed, and we hear that the, the method is lethal injection, and we already kind of have categories for that, so there's not really much more to be said outside of this person is condemned to death by lethal injection. And again, it's the same for John's readers here when he's talking about crucifixion. So he doesn't give a whole lot of details. It's just where they crucified him and who was there uh, who was crucified with him as well. As Jesus is crucified, though, quickly in verse 19, we learn that Pilate writes an inscription and puts it on the cross. And it reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And we're told that he writes it in three languages. And this is important. This represents some finality here. The reality that he writes this in three languages. He writes it in Aramaic. 
This would be the language that Jesus primarily spoke on earth. He writes it in Greek, which is the written language of the day, which is the original language that John wrote this book in. And then he also writes it in Latin, which is the language of the, the Romans. And so Pilate writes these three languages, uh, writes the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, in these three languages for the sake of the readers present. There would have been people who would have been more uh, accustomed to speaking one of these languages. But in so doing, Pilate does something that he didn't anticipate that he was doing. He points forward to a future scene. Something that John would have seen with his own eyes in a vision at the end of his life recorded in the book of Revelation. And for those to whom John was writing, his audience in John's gospel, not many other languages would have been known beyond just the three that this inscription is written in, of Aramaic, Greek, and, and Latin. But uh, John, probably Hebrew, of course, because that's the language of the Old Testament, but the known world, the people who were reading John's gospel and who John was ministering to, the world largely operated within these three, three languages that Pilate uses to write his inscription. And I think the reason John includes this detail and the reason why uh, this is important for us to understand is because of the scene that John himself bears witness to in his, in his vision that he has that's recorded in the book of Revelation. In, ver in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and crying, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This scene shows us, and very explicitly said, that all kinds of peoples who speak all kinds of languages will worship Jesus as king for eternity. It's not one people group, it's not one language, but all kinds of peoples in all kinds of languages. And so Pilate's inscription, even in these dark moments, points to the triumph of Jesus as he is lifted on the cross. The things that Jesus' death will accomplish. And he's pointing all the way back as well to what Jesus said to, uh, to Nicodemus, who gets mentioned at the end of our passage. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, right before 16, he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, the lifted up language may not have clicked. The reality that Jesus is to be lifted up on a cross, an instrument of death, may not have clicked. But through it, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus mentions this again in John chapter 12, verse 32. And when I am lifted, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see that, that 
the, the two words in, at the, towards the end, all people. This is all kinds of people. The, all, all kinds of people who will sit around the throne and worship Jesus for all of eternity. All kinds of people who speak all kinds of languages. Pilate is giving us a foreshadowing of this by writing this in three different languages, the languages largely that the world operated in. So there's finality, and we must note the finality in Pilate's inscription because the Jews immediately say, we don't like this. They say, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate ends the conversation. He says, I, what I have written, I have written. And all four gospel writers, the four gospels in the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all give accounts of Jesus' life, and all of them include details about Pilate writing the inscription above Jesus. But John's gospel here in John chapter 19 is the only one that records the Jews' discontent with the words and Pilate then sticking to his guns and saying, what I've written, I've written. The question we have to ask is, why does he want to include that? And he wants to include it because of what Jesus says in verse 30. It is finished. He wants finality to be understood. He wants us to know that what is unfolding in these events that are recorded here can't be undone. It can't be reversed. It's building to Jesus' words. It is finished. Despite the best efforts of sinful men, Jesus' kingship is inevitable. It is final. He, sure, he's lifted up on an instrument of death, but what is written above him, even in those very moments, points to the fact that he is ultimately triumphant. And the fact that Jesus' kingship isn't a claim. It's not a claim. It is a certainty. An unalterable, unbreakable certainty. So immediately we begin to see the finality in this passage. The finality of what is written is written. The finality of the fact that Jesus is lifted up, yes, on an instrument of death, but by doing so, he is drawing all kinds of people to himself who will sit around the throne and worship Jesus for eternity. There is finality then seen in Pilate's inscription. The second illustration of finality, though, we see is in Jesus' fulfillment of the Scriptures. And in our passage this morning, there are three explicit, uh, direct statements about Jesus fulfilling the Scriptures. You can see them in your Bible in verse 24. John says, so they said to one another, let us not tear it. They're talking about Jesus' tunic. But cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then he says explicitly, this, is, this was to fulfill the scripture which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This comes from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. And then if you look down the page, just a few verses in verse 28. In parenthesis, we're told that what Jesus is about to say is to fulfill the Scripture when He said, I thirst from the cross. This comes from Psalm 69, 21. 
They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. What did they give Jesus? There was some sour wine there. And so they give him a sponge with sour wine on it. The third example here, though, is in verse 36. And this comes from a couple of different places, from Psalm 34, 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is in fulfillment of the scriptures, the reality that Jesus, uh, on the cross, when they came to him to break his legs in order to speed up the dying process, his legs, or he was already dead, and so they didn't bother breaking his legs. And in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. This fulfills what is said in verse 34, when they pierce his side with a spear instead of simply breaking his legs. These three, verse 24, 28, and 36, John points to explicit fulfillment of the scriptures in these three instances. But additionally, there are many allusions in this passage to the fulfillment of Scripture that John includes. Uh, Damon read earlier from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, uh, a passage that is relatively familiar to us, and we see several points of fulfillment in this passage alone, and I can't be exhaustive here because they go on forever. But for instance, in what Damon, uh, or in verse 17, uh, in our passage, or in chapter 19 of John, in, chap- in verse 17, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Jesus carries his cross to Golgotha. And Isaiah 53, 7 says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. And then in our passage, verse 18 they crucified him and, uh, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. In Isaiah 53, 12, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. And also in verse 18, they crucified Jesus and he was raised or lifted up on the cross. In Isaiah 52, 12, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Jesus uses the lifted up language again to describe his crucifixion in John 3 and John 12. And then consider verse 34 in chapter 9 of John. Jesus' side is pierced when the soldiers determine he is dead. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgression. Again, there's no way that I can be exhaustive here, but I would encourage you to go even just look at Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12 and think about this portion of John chapter 19 and write down all of the ways in which you see the connection. The language is, is remarkably similar. That's a good thing for you to do this afternoon. So these three explicit statements, the three explicit statements that Jesus did this to fulfill the scriptures and... 
and the allusions to the fulfillment of Scripture in this passage and these other passages in the Old Testament give us a picture of the finality in Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture. What I mean is this. No one else needs to come along and fulfill what's written in Isaiah 53 and 52 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 and Zechariah 12. No one else needs to come along and take care of those things. All of those things are completely fulfilled. This is not a cycle. We don't need another one. It doesn't need to happen again. And what is written in the Old Testament concerning God's plan of redemption for His people is fulfilled entirely, without exception, by Jesus Christ. God's plan of redemption doesn't need amendments. It doesn't need additions. God's plan of redemption was sovereignly laid out before the foundation of the world and throughout the Old Testament and is brought to a perfect, unbreakable, unalterable conclusion in Jesus Christ. There is nothing more that needs to be added beyond the words that Jesus says, it is finished. So there is finality then seen in Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture. So the first two here, these illustrations, palace inscription, and then the fulfillment of Scripture that we see throughout this passage. And then the third thing that I want to point you to this morning is we see the finality in Jesus' actual physical death. After Jesus says, in verse 30, it is finished, it says, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus bows his head and gives up his spirit. He has physically died. And John goes into some detail here to ensure that we understand this. In verse 33, the soldiers see that Jesus is dead, and so they do not break his legs. And in verse 34, his side is pierced, and out of it flows physical water and physical blood. And in verse 35, John himself makes this note. Look at your Bible with me in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. This is John. He who saw it, John, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. And for what purpose? That you also may believe. John is giving us a little insight into the fact that he was there. If we back up to uh, verse 25, or uh, yes, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sisters. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, the disciple whom he loved here is John. John is there. John tells Jesus that he will take care of his mom for him. And now he is making an explicit statement about the reality that he was there and he saw it. He saw Jesus give up his spirit. He saw him die physically. He saw the water and the blood come out of Jesus' side when the soldiers pierced him with the spear. Why? Why does he want us to know this? Why is he being adamant about the fact that he bore witness to Jesus' actual physical death? The early church would have been plagued by a lot of speculation about Jesus' death. 
lots of people, lots of false teachers would have showed up and started saying, well, um, maybe it's a bit of a hoax. And some of these have even continued to our day. Sometimes people claim that Jesus didn't actually die, that he just went to sleep, that his heart slowed down a little bit because of, the, the, of what he endured on the way to the cross. This is foolishness. John says very clearly that Jesus died and that he bore witness to it. If Jesus just feigned death, if he just fainted physically, and then walked out of the grave three days later after actually not physically dying, then we need to discard what John says here, and we need to discard the scriptures entirely. Jesus died an actual physical death, and this sets us up for the understanding that Jesus conquered death. Through his death, Jesus conquered death. The early church would also be plagued by false teaching that would say that Jesus didn't actually even have a physical body. So he could not die a physical death. And John fights off these false ideas. And the way he does it is by saying, I was there and I saw it. It happened. It was real. It was physical. It cannot be contrived. It is actually what happened. As we move towards a conclusion in John's gospel as well, we're going to see the scene where they, the disciples, Thomas in particular, puts his hands in the wounds of Jesus post-resurrection. That there is a physical nature to it. Jesus didn't come back as some ethereal uh, ghost person. He came back as a real physical person. Body. Physical in nature. Similarly, John gives account of Jesus' burial. Jesus' body is wrapped in linen cloths. Um, the burial practices and customs are accounted for. Jesus is placed in a tomb. And the details around his burial are given again so that we would know that Jesus is physically, really, actually dead. Those are not wrapping people in linen cloths and putting a bunch of spices, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe on people, not practice for the living. That's not how we treat people who are alive. And it's important to note that Jesus' statement then in verse 30, it is finished, corresponds to his actual physical death. Because Jesus died as a substitute sacrifice for his people. Jesus died a substitutionary sacrifice for his people. In our place, he died. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. His death needed to, it had to, in order to fulfill God's plan of redemption, it had to be real. It had to be physical. John's gospel begins, the narrative portion begins with the John the Baptist shouting, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of this, all that we're reading here in John 19 is happening during the Passover. It's all happening during the Passover. And Jesus, therefore, is the Paschal Lamb. The Paschal Lamb is the Lamb without spot or blemish, sacrificed by each household 
the last final plague in Egypt. And God told the people of Israel to sacrifice this lamb and to put its blood over the doorposts of their house so that their firstborn sons would not be killed in this final plague in Egypt. And when instituting the remembrance of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, God tells Moses and Aaron, it shall be, it, the lamb, shall be eaten in one house. You shall take, uh, you shall not take any of its flesh outside of the house and you shall not break any of its bones. Remember again that Jesus' legs were not, were not broken. The remembrance the command to remember the Passover contains things and fulfillments of Scripture explicitly here in John's Gospel. Jesus' actual physical death had to happen. As Christians, friends, we must affirm that Jesus truly died. That Jesus was a man who walked the earth and who lived a life, and his life looked a lot like ours, and who died a real, actual, physical death. Not something made up, not something fabricated by his followers, but a real, actual, physical death. Because outside of and without Jesus' actual physical death, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are still dead in our sins apart from Jesus' actual physical death. Because no payment could be made, no sacrifice could be made, No substitute could be given. No redemption is possible. No forgiveness can be offered outside of Jesus' actual physical death. And again, in John chapter 12, verse 32, and consider also verse 33, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John adds a note. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus knew he would die an actual physical death. He would not go to sleep. He would not pass out. He would not fake it. He would die. Jesus is really a man who dies when you beat him and crucify him and whose side pours out water and blood when you stick a spear into it and whose bones can break or, in this case, remain intact. We are given this information about Jesus' death and burial, John says, so that we might believe. So that we might genuinely believe that Jesus is our substitute. So that we would know that it has genuinely been taken care of. Our sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. Because if Jesus' death, physical death, is in question, then you and I can have no assurance of faith at all. But John gives us great insight and says, and says, no, it did happen and I saw it with my own eyes. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes this down so that we might believe that our sins have been paid for, so that we might believe that they've been removed from us. There is finality in Jesus' actual physical death, a final sacrifice for sin. It is finished. I want you to consider, as we draw to close this morning, I want you to consider two takeaways. Two things for you this morning. First, 
it is finished, Jesus' words in verse 30, it is finished means that God's plan to save his people is complete. Actually, really, entirely complete. God in eternity past covenanted with himself to redeem a people for his own possession. And in the pages of Scripture, beginning in Genesis 1-1, he begins revealing to his people how he's going to carry out this plan of redemption. The Old Testament, friends, is not a bunch of good guesses at how God is going to make it happen. It's not a bunch of failed attempts where God was like, I'm going to try and redeem these people, but ah, that didn't really work out. Trial and error. We'll get it right the next time, guys. That's not what the Old Testament represents. And then finally in the New Testament, he gets it right. No. It is God planning salvation, sovereignly carrying out his plan exactly in the way he desired. And one of the reasons we can see Jesus fulfilling the scriptures so clearly here in our passage this morning surrounding his death with this immense clarity is that the events here in John chapter 19 were always the plan. Always. Not, not, not conceived at any point, but always the plan from eternity past. Friends, you have and serve a God who has always, forever, without exception in this room, planned to redeem those who are joined to Christ by faith. There is not one of us in this room who God did not know before the foundations of the earth and in eternity past, that he would redeem you. That's a humbling thought. God wasn't making it up as he went along. The scriptures with immense clarity point to Jesus Christ. Are you tempted to treat this plan as incomplete? Are you tempted to treat the plan God's redemptive plan that he has held in his mind from eternity past, are you tempted to treat it as incomplete? Here's what I mean. Do you think that something else needs to be added to God's plan to save his people? Do you think that the words, it is finished, mean except for? Do you think that there is a plus that needs to be put here behind these words? words. And you say, well, no, I, Jesus finished it. It says he finished it. Let me ask you this. Do you frequently feel prolonged guilt after repenting, truly repenting of your sin? Like you feel like you need to do something a little bit more to pay for it? Like some additional payment needs to be made. Like, yeah, I, I repented of my sin and I turned from it and I went to Christ, but the guy, I got to do something else, right? Friends, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And genuine repentance results in great rejoicing because there is nothing more to be done. It is finished, Jesus says. Maybe you feel like you need to make sacrifices in your life. Sacrifices in such a way that are required to earn God's favor. 
You say, I need, to, I need to do this and this in order to make sure that God sees me, takes note of me, and understands that I am, in fact, worthy of the salvation that he has freely gifted me. But friends, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. And he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that Jesus made is final. Prolonged guilt, work that you feel like you need to do in your own flesh to get God's attention or to satiate what you feel internally. None of these things, none of these things are needed or necessary. God's plan to save his people is complete. His plan of redemption was finished perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ when he said, it is finished. The second and final thing I want you to walk away with this morning is it is finished means that all of this, all of what Jesus does here through his death is more finished than anything ever has been. It's more finished than anything ever has been. It is finished points to God's work, and it sets it apart from our work. Our work is never finished in the sense that there's always breakfast to eat, make, and always laundry to do, and always more goals at work. Our world is a cyclical one. The ocean never fills up. It evaporates, then goes back up there on the mountains, and then comes back down. But we should recognize when Jesus died on the cross that represented finality in a way that has never been experienced before in human history. There was nothing to do tomorrow. There was nothing to do tomorrow. The next day was the Sabbath. Jesus would go into the ground and he would rest. There was no more work to do. There was nothing more to do after he uttered the words, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. There was nothing more to do. Perfect rest. How can we know that rest? How can you know that peace, that peace that there is nothing more to do? Jesus paid it all. You don't owe a little bit more. You don't need to go through the couch for coins. The infinite debt is covered. No collection agency is calling you. God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There is nothing more to do. The debt is paid. It is finished. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to fear that the collection agency is calling. And if you think that's ringing... Somewhere in your mind, that's a strategy of the evil one saying, no, you didn't do enough. You didn't make it out. You're not going to make it out. You're not, you're not worthy of this. But friends, it's not about you being worthy or your ability to cover your debt. It's all only finished in the one who is perfectly worthy, Jesus Christ. There's no sin here that isn't covered. These three words, there's no sin that isn't covered. 
take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. You know, there might be things in your life right now that you are, you are torn up over. Ways in which you have sinned against people and done things that you can't even... You say, God, how can that be paid for? How can that be included? Friends, the assurance here is that it is. That the debt is paid, that it is fully covered. It is finished means you don't have to labor anymore to pay it off, to make up for it, or to cover it. And at this moment, recorded right here in John chapter 19, verse 30, all that needs to be done for you to be redeemed was done. Brothers and sisters, this morning, rest, rest in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these three simple words and what they mean for us. God, there is immense peace and rest that can be found through recognizing that it is not our work here, but yours. That it is the work that was planned out before the foundation of the world. That there is nothing that needs to be added to, no amendments that need to be made. But finality here is, in fact, final. It's not a cycle. We can't improve upon it. We can't do it better. God, we thank you for what you've promised to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That for all who are joined to him by faith have become inheritors of eternal life. God, cause us today to see clearly that you have called us into into this eternal life. That you are not ashamed to call us brothers. That you are not ashamed to to bring us into your presence. But God, because Jesus has paid our debt of sin, we are fully forgiven. God, for these things we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.